Good morning. Before we get started, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, the week has been so busy. Um, For some, it's been crazy. For some, it's been peaceful. For some, it's been uncertain. Um, Lord, there's so many emotions that we bring into this day as a chance that we come to gather as a body of Christ, a local expression of your global body, which demonstrates your manifold wisdom to all of creation. But when we come in, we're just tired. And that is completely okay. And so, Lord, we come before you today to rest in the presence of your word, to allow it to fill us and shape us and mold us and challenge us. Holy Spirit, I beg you to stir in my heart. Lord, I repent of the times this week where I have worked to build my own kingdom, where I've I've just strived to, to glorify myself and not glorify you. And Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I pray that we as a congregation will demonstrate who you are by how we love each other. And let that start now. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. On Tuesday, June 6, 1944, 6.30 a.m., 5,000 ships carrying about 160,000 Allied troops approached the southern beaches in France. It's going to be the largest invasion in modern history, what we now call D-Day. Some of the men who survived the invasion said that they remember the steady stream of exhortations being broadcast over the ship intercoms in the final minutes as the ship approached the French beaches. They'd hear, fight to get your, your troops ashore, fight to get your troops Ashore, fight to save your ships. And if you've got any strength left, fight to save yourself. They might hear, we may die on the sands of France, but we will never turn back. This is it. Pick it up. Put it on. You've got one-way ticket and this is the end of the line. Over 2,500 Americans died that day. Many in a span of about 15 minutes. As the boats reached the shore, the disembarking disembarking soldiers literally had to crawl over at times the bodies of the other other soldiers just to get to shore. This is a sobering picture and a very different picture from the realities that we have recently discussed in Ephesians. You know, if we look at the first little bit in Ephesians, we, we saw Paul gracefully lay out these deep and incredi- this deep and incredible doctrine in the first three chapters. And then we didn't get a chance to study it, but in, in chapters 4 and 5 and in the chapter 6, he exhorts us as followers of Jesus Christ to walk in a manner worthy of the express doctrine in chapters 1 through 3. 
Now we pick up today, we skip a little bit, we move to chapter 6, verse 10, and he begins to close out the letter with a very sobering dose of reality. He wants us to know what we have and then why this matters. And so today we pick up in Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verse 10. I'd love for you to go ahead and turn there in your Bible, if you're willing and able, we're going to read this together as a congregation. So if you would stand with me as we read. As a reminder, we stand on the rock of Scripture. It has been the same for 2,000 years and even longer than that if you go back to the, to the Old Testament. And so it is something that we can, we can root our lives in. So as a congregation, we stand to show this. Ephesians 6, 10 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm therefore. Having girded up your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. And with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be, may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. You know, we jump into verse 6, and Paul is here closing it out, and he says, I'm sorry, in verse 10 in chapter 6, and he says, finally, so he's wrapping everything up. He's putting a bow on all the doctrine and all the practical illustrations that he put forward, and he said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so this in our uh, process today, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 13, is the what. This is the what. And if, you, if you're listening to this, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. We actually see this redundancy, and we've said time and time again, whenever we see redundancy in Scripture, this is a way for an author uh, writing in Greek or in Hebrew to draw attention to a, a, a thing. And here we see three terminologies for power. And if you think about it, you're like, okay, I get it. Be strong. So there's power in the Lord and in the strength, the power of his might, which is power. So we see power, power, power. Now, but one thing we need to pay very close attention to is one of the powers is related to us. Two of them are related to God. The one related to us is the very first one. Be strong is what it's saying. Now, oftentimes we get this wrong. 
And we think of someone, when we're told to be strong, we think of someone at the gym strengthening themselves or someone who is well-read that is studying more, reading more books, they're, they're strengthening their mind. Now, but the problem with this is this term, be strong, is actually what we call in, our, in the Greek is called a present imperative passive. All right, it's written, so Paul wrote this as a present imperative passive. That means really nothing until you kind of break it apart. Basically what it means is this term, be strong, is as true to you today as it was 2,000 years ago or almost when he wrote it. Be strong. So it's a present thing that we can accept now. It's imperative. So it's just like when you talk to your kids like, hey, go get dressed. It's an imperative. It doesn't mean later. It means now. So be strong. It's important to you right now. But there's this beautiful piece to it that we get wrong so often. It's a passive. It's a passive So think about this. It's like charging your phone. What do you do to charge your phone? What does your phone do to charge itself? Nothing, right? That's why you can't blame your phone for not being charged, right? No. Whose fault is it? Yours. Why is my wife's phone always dead? It's not because of the phone. It's because she didn't charge it. And there's nothing more fascinating to me but the, the magnetic charger where you just set it on there and your phone charges. It's like, well, what'd you do? Nothing. You set your phone on the charge, like just choop, and then it charges. It's incredible to me. I don't know why it's incredible to me, but I'm just confessing that before you. <laughs> but it's given power by simply what? Sitting there on the charger. Paul. Be strengthened in the Lord. Be strengthened in the Lord. We are given power as followers of Jesus to be powerful. We're given power. Where are we given the power from? From the power source. Where's our power source? We look to Jesus. If we look through the first five chapters of Ephesians, what is he saying? But look to Jesus constantly. We look to Jesus for our power. The phone simply sits on the power source and it receives power. It's charged. It's like magic. So there's good news and bad news of this. All right, before we move forward, we got to make sure we, we, we flesh through this because it's going to matter as we kind of move in. All right, because we have these two kind of polar opposites when we're talking to followers of Jesus. So let me tell you, Bad news first, all right? If you are a self-made man or woman, all right, if you're one of those that kind of flexes your spiritual triceps in the, in the, in the mirror, not so you can see it, but so everybody else can see your, your I don't have any triceps, so I can't really do it. But so you're flexing and you're like, yeah, but you're not really flexing for yourself. You really want the person next to you to see it in the mirror as well. And if you're that kind of self-made spiritual person, you're flexing your muscles so you can show off your self-righteousness and your good deeds, this might not be the message for you. All right, I'm going to warn you. So if that's kind of your mentality, take a deep breath, maybe just hang out for a little bit. If you, if you want to roll out, I would completely understand, just drop your offering in the offering <laughs> plate as you go. You can flex as you write it, however you want to. Um, but then the good news. 
for those of you that carry these, these scars of life and life isn't really that easy and you kind of see sometimes just how broken you might be, you, you know, you know your failures, you know your disappointment, you know your sins. You're, you're that person who, like Paul, the Apostle Paul, one of, the, one of the foremost writers in all of Scripture who screams out in Romans 7.24, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? If you feel that way, this might be something you want to pay attention to. One of the commentators that I was reading this week um, in studying for this message, he says, nothing gives us more of a passion for the righteousness of Christ than a specific and growing awareness of our own brokenness. We are fully invited to be strengthened by an external source, and we need that power source. But the beautiful thing about this, before we even move forward, is is that our power source is not a thing. It's not some charger in a wall. It's not something that we can like uh, visualize necessarily, but it is actually a person. That's our power, and our person, and his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. We look to him. That's what separates us as followers of Jesus. So what do we do now? What do we do now? Verse 11 moves on. Put on the full armor of God. So we're to passively accept the power. It's coming to us from a power source whose name is Jesus. Now put on the power of God. Now put on the full armor of God. Paul is yelling to us here now in his imperative state to say, you've been fed, you've been filled, you've been empowered. Now do something with it. In my house, around 8 o'clock in the morning, when we're supposed to be leaving for school, you will hear in a very like calm and very righteous tone, put on your clothes. It's not how it goes. It's like, you've eaten breakfast, now go get dressed, Lord, child, what are you doing? Why is this taking so long? Any witnesses in the congregation? I mean, there it is, okay. I'm not the only one. All right, so that's kind of how it rolls. Paul's screaming to us, hey, you've been empowered. Now go put something on. I've given you, Jesus Christ has given us everything we need. Now we're supposed to go wear it. We demonstrate God's adequate and complete power by using what he has given us at our salvation. Paul lays this out later. We're actually going to go through each one of these these pieces of the armor of God here soon, but when we boil it down, it's basically, all it is is it's truth. God gives us truth. We can can put it on. We can embody it. We can let it wash over it. His righteousness. His peace. We all long for peace. God's given us infinite peace from the cross. Faith, our salvation. He's given us his word for the grass wither and the flowers fade, but what? 
the word of the Lord stands forever. He's empowered us with this Holy Spirit, and we don't access it. And he's given us access to him through prayer. So Paul's illustrating what we're about to go over as the armor of God. Now, we've got to make sure that we're, we're careful with this because it says put on. So we have, we have it, now we have to use it, the armor of God. Why is it the armor, though? I'm not a soldier. I'm just a regular person. All right, and then I even had to ask while I was reading this, could I have had a little consternation in here because, you know, we've got, I think, two people in our congregation right now that have served in the armed forces before, and so typically we're like, and in Pittsburgh, there's not a lot of interaction with those that are in the armed forces. I grew up in a place where there was. And so here you're like, Paul, why you got to use such like a macho reference, man? Like, what's the deal? Well, if you remembered in verse 20 that we just read, Paul is actually in chains. He's, he's bound. And there's Paul being Paul. Because he was so emphatic in spreading the word of God, they actually thought it would be a good idea if they chained him while he was in prison to a Roman soldier. Philippians actually refers to the fact that he was with the Praetorian Guard or the Imperial Guard. Which means you're not just talking about a regular, like, private kind of soldier. There's a good chance that Paul himself, while he's in prison, while he's writing all these letters to the churches, and while he's praising God, despite his circumstances, he is trained to a guy that was probably comparable to what would be a Navy SEAL to this day. A guy who could probably kill him with his pinky. And Paul is still praising God. And so Paul's writing this letter, and he's like, okay, all this stuff they've just given, what can I relate it to? Hmm, ah, what about the armor? Let's do armor. Let's use that illustration to paint the picture. So here Paul is most likely um, showing us that there's this, sh- there's this soldier next to him who's in full battle armor. Because this soldier who has been trained to trust his gear and who has been trained to fight. This soldier knew that he needed all of his gear because whenever we put on the full armor of God, it's an all or defeat kind of thing. We don't leave one thing out. It's all or defeat. And so even this soldier who's trained to this lowly man, Paul, has all of his armor on. Because even Paul and himself could pose some type of threat. So why? Why does, why does Paul keep saying full armor of God? He actually says it twice in these series of verses. And he says in 11b, he continues to roll forward, and this is where we transition from the what into the why. He says in 11, the, the kind of middle part of 11b, so that... So put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. Now typically, from an American pulpit, this is where we give the rah-rah speech. This is where we fire up the soldiers. This is where we're screaming in your ear to fight, fight, move forward, let's go. We've got to pay very close attention to this word, stand firm. And I will be honest with you. This is where I was very grieved this week. As your pastor, studying this, this phrase, stand firm, my heart broke. 
Because if you're like me, there's a lot of you that have worked extremely hard in so many areas of your life, and you just can't figure out why it's not all coming together at times. And it's because we have been duped in believing that if we just work harder, if we just try harder, if we just put forth more effort, finally God's going to bless us. Finally, I'm going to be the person that I need to become. And I'm going to receive the blessings that I feel like I deserve if I just work harder. And that is not what this passage of Scripture is saying. And so I'm hoping today, as this did for me this week, is release a piece of bondage from me. Where he says, stand firm. This does not mean that we are expected to advance. This does not mean that we are expected to attack. We are simply expected to hold ground, stand firm. We root ourselves and we ground ourselves, which is terminology that is used throughout Ephesians, to stand firm and hold ground that has already been won. Listen very carefully. This is where we get to rest in the beauty of Scripture and the, in the beauty of the gospel that we don't fight from, we don't fight for victory. We don't fight for victory. We do not fight for victory. Make sure that's very clear. We fight from victory. The victory has been one. Our victory is not a thing, but it is a person. It is Jesus Christ, our Lord, who hung on a cross and then was risen again on the third day. He is our victory. We stand firm in that. He said on the cross, it is finished. And then what do we say now but the completed work of Christ? The victory is won. It's celebrated because of an empty tomb. So what's the big deal? What's the big deal now? Well, if we go back to our D-Day analogy, which I even had some consternation in doing that because I don't want you to feel like you got to jump out the ship and run forward and ah, whatever it is. One thing we do have to acknowledge is that images like that you know, make us grateful, of course, for the men and women who have given their lives for the cause of freedom. But I want to share it more to emphasize the fact that the men that approached that beach that day, there were no delusions about what they were about to go after. You know, they didn't think it was going to be some exotic day or some, some vacation on an exotic beach in France. They, they didn't think that was the case. They weren't, they weren't rolling in in their swimsuits and towels and rubber duckies to go play and their little shovels to go build sandcastles. They knew what they were coming in for. They knew it wasn't going to be pretty. You know, I wish that we could kind of change the fact of what we're up against, that we actually have a real enemy, much like they had a real enemy that they were approaching. 
You know, and, and Paul acknowledges that here in the, in the second, or the, I guess the last part of, of verse 11. He wants us to know, you know, what our spiritual battle is and what's trying to keep us from standing firm. He says in verse 11c, he says, against the schemes of the devil, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so here we have to understand kind of the context of what the Ephesians understood. The Ephesians were not modern-day materialists like we are. They were well acclimated with spiritual forces. All right, what they lacked in physical, in physical security, they had to make up for in spiritual considerations. So they had a God for anything and everything. Ephesians especially was Artemis. Is who, there was a, one of the seven wonders of the world. Artemis Temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. So they were well acclimated and acquainted with spiritual forces. They would sacrifice to their God of choice and just hope for safety. They would hope for security. They would hope for comfort. But you know, we have all these modern technological marvels that, that ensure our physical safety and security and comfort. So that's not something we have to pay attention to. We have locks on our doors. We have thermostats that keep things the perfect temperature for us. What's one of the, the biggest complaints I get as a pastor? The church is too cold. But then right behind it, what does somebody say? The church is too hot. It's like, I don't know. Is it what? I'm not sure. But we have a thermostat. That's what the expectation is. We have insulated clothing. We have indoor plumbing. Praise God. Indoor, this is not West Virginia. If you're from West Virginia, I'm joking. All right? You can talk to me later. <sighs> we have 401ks. We put money away for later, just in case. We have insurance. We pay money monthly or yearly, however you do it, for just in case, just in case. We have hand sanitizer. You name it, we got it. We know what we're up against physically here in, in our culture, but our current cultural phenomena of sufficiency lulls us to sleep in the spiritual sense sometimes in the spiritual realm and so Paul here is making it very clear to the Ephesians then and even us now he says be on guard against the schemes of the devil put on the full armor of God against the schemes of the devil well one of the schemes the the, the word scheme is really important your Bible might say something a little bit different but in the olden times I don't know how far that that back that goes that could be like when I was born but we, it says schemes. Well, there was, this term, there was this term that was stated, I guess, however many years ago, the wiles of Satan, W-I-L-E-S. And all the commentators pointed back to the wiles of Satan, the wiles of the devil. And when I heard that, I thought about my man, Wiley E. Coyote. All right? Now, how much Wiley E. Coyote wants to get the Roadrunner? All right, he dreams about it, he thinks about it, he does everything in his possible power to divert 
the, the roadrunner to him so he can finally get him for dinner. He, he even tells the roadrunner who he's not, that he's really slow and he's stuck in mud. He, he tries to destroy the roadrunner by getting the, to run off the cliffs. He, he makes the roadrunner doubt if, if it's even worth running away. He tries to discourage the roadrunner in any way, shape, or form. He tries to trick him. He goes through all these different things. The wiles of Wiley E. Coyote. Man, I wish it was a cartoon. The wiles of Satan. The wiles of the devil. He does everything he can to shield us from the beauty that we have in Christ Jesus. Warren Wiersbe says that he's, he's a master in duplicity. Satan's a denouncer. And he's the great accuser. He's a destroyer. He has a PhD in raising doubt in our minds and in our heart for who Christ is and what he's done for us. He's a discourager. He's going to feed us information that discourages constantly in any way he possibly can. He wants us to deny the beauty of what Christ has done for us, you know? And we can get through that and we're like, all right, that's cool. That's kind of something, you know, between me and Satan. And I can, I can talk to my discipleship group about that. I can get accountability for that. But Paul's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now listen, there's, there's even more. Hold on. And he finishes and moves into verse 12. And he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not right here in front of us all the time. It's bigger than this. Listen to what he says. But it's against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You know, this battle that we're, we're in now is beyond the physical. It's also a spiritual struggle against evil spiritual powers, dark spiritual beings under the leadership of Satan, which is taking place in a spiritual realm. And if you're like, whoa, that's really weird, I think it is too. But I'd be lying to you to by saying, hey, don't worry about that. That's something that we do have to worry about. If you're interested in kind of going deeper into that, there are some great Christian uh, researchers and theologians that, that look into that. One of them is Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R. He wrote a book, The Unseen Realm, and he posts blog posts and stuff about this as well. Just as a reminder, man, we are up against some big, nasty forces here. You know, if this is making you uncomfortable, that's probably a good thing right now. You know, Peter says this is, Satan's not just some little cute kitty cat. He's a stray kitten in the corner that we see and we give food and milk to and we can just pet and it's just going to just leave us alone. No, he says that Satan is like a crouching lion ready to pounce and devour. John in his writing says he is here to steal, kill, and destroy that is his, he, he's happiest when he's stealing from you, trying to kill you, literal death, kill, and destroy. And then he also says he is the father of lies. There is no truth that comes out of his mouth or from his being. He despises us. He hates you, he hates your family, he hates your marriage, he hates your kids, he hates your job. Anything that brings you joy, he despises. He's going to do anything that he can to put you in two worlds, serving this world and God's. He's duplicitous. In Revelation, he says he's an accuser. 
He's going to throw flaming ears at you constantly to make you question who you are in Christ Jesus. But the beautiful piece about this, let us not forget the victory has been won. Jesus Christ defeated this. We have to understand in us. Illustration kind of goes, in a civil war, you know, much of the battle in a civil war, especially a third world country, takes place in the larger metropolitan areas where the fight is for the control of the government or the military, the economic strongholds, or we could say the heart of the country. When the victory is won, though, opposing forces are pushed out and often out into the rural places in that country, and they become what is now known as like rebel forces. They practice guerrilla warfare. They look for sneak attacks. Sadly, years after major victory is won, there's sometimes still casualties out in the rural areas. This is us. You know, Jesus has won the war over sin and death. He's won it. But the battle still rages on. There's still parts in our heart that Satan works to infiltrate and harden and be like, I don't listen to that. Don't worry about that. Don't think about that. That's not true. I'm better. I'm better. I'm better. I'm better. We can't let our guard down. Put on the full armor of God. We've got to know what we're up against. We have to know our enemy. And then Paul closes this statement out before he goes into listing out what the armor of God is. He says, therefore, consider everything that I just said. Therefore, I'm going to summarize this for you. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to what? Stand firm. Don't give up ground. Victory's won. Stand firm. You know, the choice is not whether that we'll be Christian, quote, soldiers or not, or Christian civilians. We're in the battle. We continue this analogy. We're in the battle. Satan's after us. The question is whether or not we're going to be prepared soldiers or unprepared soldiers. That's the question. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I am super glad you're here. But I'll tell you, in this battle, you're fighting with nothing. You're standing firm with nothing. You don't have the benefits of what Christ offers us through salvation. The grace and the peace and the mercy, the patience, the truth, the righteousness, whatever it may be. I'd love to talk to you more about that. For you as followers of Jesus... This whole thing is Paul screaming to us, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. You've been given everything, stand firm. And what he's really saying is rest. Rest in who Jesus is. Rest in your salvation. Rest. So how do we do that? We have to pay attention to our lifestyles. We use, uh, we use lifestyles uh, here at Still City Church, and they're, they're based on the, the learning and living the ways of Jesus, which is up, in, and out. How do we rest in Jesus? Well, we have to hold space open 
for enjoying connection with God. To hold space for that. To make space for that. And then hold space for that. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to remind ourselves of truth. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that gives us access to God. To take time to meditate on his word. Ingest truth from the thing that never fades, never, never leaves. We can rest in his strength. The strength of the strength of his strength. We can hold space for that. We can apply the gospel to us, the truth, the righteousness, the peace, the faith, the salvation, all that. And we move to another side of it. We have to hold space for ourselves to invest in each other. Life tells us through busyness, the, the, the demon of busyness at times, I don't worry about them, they'll be fine, just worry about yourself. But Jesus says, they're gonna know you're my disciple how you love each other so we hold space for each other because the beautiful thing is is in the analogy of a soldier a soldier doesn't think of himself alone he always thinks of himself with other soldiers and other people he would never go into battle by himself sounds cool and all but that's not how it works we can't sustain and stand alone by ourselves. So how do we hold space to invest in each other? Do you have other followers of Jesus around you? Do you have people that you, you meet with constantly? Are you willing to go there, wherever there is, with someone else? Are you willing to go in and step in to the messiness of life with someone else? That's hard. It's tiring. It's messy. But we invest in each other. Then finally, we hold space to engage the disconnected. You know, there are people that, are, that live next to you or work next to you or in class next to you or, or in the coffee shop next to you, whatever it may be, that they're completely ignorant to the fact that they are following a leader to their destruction. They're following a leader to their destruction. Are we going to tell them? Are we going to care for them? Are we going to show them, hey, we can put on the full armor of God because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Many of you know I was a, a teacher um, coming out of college. I, of course, did my, my student teaching at Pontiac Elementary School. And I'll never forget the day when it was my turn to finally take the class over for a couple weeks. And Miss Thompson, who was my coaching teacher, she showed up that morning. She said, are you ready? And I was like, uh, maybe. And... You know, I'd been in her class for a month now. We had been going through things, and I'd kind of progressively taken some stuff off of her plate and was teaching more and more things, and it was the day. And she left that classroom, 
and shut the door behind her, and I turned around, and of course, my first class was that class. And within about five seconds of her shutting the door, this one little girl walks up to a little boy with a ruler and slaps him across the face as hard as she possibly can, and she screams, don't ever talk about my mama again. Y'all ever had that feeling of unpreparedness? That feeling when you know you're expected to do something and you just don't know if you have it in you to do it. Man, that's a hard feeling. Put on the full armor of God so that we can stand firm to resist the devil on the evil day so we can do everything we possibly can to what? To stand firm. We as followers of Jesus, have been completely prepared. Jesus Christ paid for everything. The victory is won. Beautiful thing is we focus not on the evil schemes of the enemy, the wiles of Satan. We don't focus on that. What did it say at the very beginning? Be strengthened. Be powered. Be empowered by the power of the power. He's got you. Another thing, we're called to wear the armor of God because Jesus demonstrated that for us. He's already done it. That's why we can confidently say our victory is not a thing, but it's a person. And then finally, man, when that feeling of unpreparedness comes, this is the beauty of it, and this is what I hope you take away from this. Standing our ground simply means clinging desperately to Jesus as our only hope for salvation. The band would go ahead and come up. We're going to close out just kind of processing through that. Standing our ground simply means clinging desperately to Jesus Christ for our only hope of salvation. I will say typically this is where we do communion. Our communion supplies are on a UPS truck somewhere in oblivion. We don't know where they are. And they keep saying, hey, they're going to be delivered. And then they don't get delivered. And then we look back and they got pushed back. And so they were supposed to be here yesterday and they're still not here. So I am sorry. One of the things in, in communion is we take kind of a deep look into ourselves and hold space there. So we can still do that. It says, standing our ground simply means clinging desperately to Jesus Christ as our only hope for salvation. Take a minute, close your eyes. As we move into a time of prayer, what does that mean? What emotion does that spark within you? What feeling do you get when you hear clinging desperately to Jesus Christ? Clinging desperately to Jesus Christ. What do you see within your mind and your heart? Maybe it's something that you just need to deal with within yourself and confess or repent. 
Maybe it's one of those things where we get a chance to praise God and thank him as we cling desperately to Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we we cling desperately to you as a church. Lord, let this not be about building a kingdom made of man. But Lord, let it be about clinging desperately to you, individually and collectively. Or I think about times just within myself where, again, I said it earlier, but man, I have just tried to cling desperately to Chris's potential clinging desperately to Chris's charisma, clinging desperately to my my sufficiency. And Lord, I am sorry for all those fall apart. Lord, let us cling desperately to you. Lord, we praise you and we honor you and we glorify you for the victory has been won. We do not fight for victory, but we fight from victory. We stand firm in victory. Lord, let that be the cry of all of us towards each other, towards the outside world. And God, let us worship and enjoy connection with you. Lord, as we move into a time of of, of worship through song again, Lord, let our hearts cry out and cling desperately to you. We love you. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. I'm going to be in the back of the room and in the side room. If anyone would like to pray or take some time to pray by yourselves with me, I would love to pray with you. Also, on your connect, there's a connect card in front of you. It looks just like that. If you would like to fill that out, there's a prayer request spot on there. We would love to pray for you. Um, we typically pray for people on Mondays um, and then throughout the week from there. And so we would love to lift you up and bear a burden with you in prayer. Um, so let's, let's worship. We cling desperately to Christ Jesus. Let us do that together. Stand and let's worship.